the Future Proof Podcast from Newstalk. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Hashtag believe in science. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. My name is Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, comment, critique or compliment, you can email us, science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. We get to all of those comments at the end of the show. Uh, Coming up on this week's programme, why does Ireland have so few dinosaurs? Uh, We'll be answering that question. But first, it's time to look back at some of the things that have happened in the world of science over the past week. And here to talk us through them is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and double Dr. Lara Dungan. You're both very welcome. Our first story. Lara is about antimicrobial resistance. Like, I suppose, you know, as if we haven't got enough of the virus, uh, this is a a uh, slow iceberg we've been um, sailing towards for quite some time, but actually was really surprised to read this headline. You know, it's funny. Um, obviously, there's a couple of things that should keep us awake, sweating in our beds at night. One of them is obviously climate change. But the thing that's been getting me for a long time, oh, plus I think the lack of clean water in the future, not to totally freak anyone out, but the thing that's been getting me is antimicrobial resistance because we are so reliant on the most basic of antibiotics for everything. Even when I first got pregnant, I got a bad tonsillitis and I had to go through two different sets of antibiotics and I was fine and I am fine, you know, and the baby's fine and everybody's fine, but that's all going to go down the tubes. And there's a brand new um, study that's just come out from in the Lancet Journal, which is a very renowned journal. And it's from the Global Research on Antimicrobial Resistance or GRAM. And what they found is they did this massive study. They looked at 204 different countries. They looked at 23 different pathogens, which are disease-causing organisms, and 88 different combinations of a pathogen and a drug. Um, And they looked at 470 million individual records, which were obtained from things like literature reviews, hospital systems, surveillance systems, and all sorts of other data sources. So this is a massive, massive study. And Mm. what they found and what they estimated is that Every year, and this was in 2019, so this counts for that year, approximately 1.27 million people die directly as a result of resistant bacteria. And another nearly 5 million deaths are associated with it. So if you take 2019 as a year, 860,000 people died from HIV or AIDS and 640,000 people died from malaria. So twice as many people died as a result of resistant microbes as did from malaria in that year. And it's frankly terrifying because it could be the most simple infection with the most basic of bacteria, but you don't have an antibiotic left to treat it. Yeah, we we, um, have been covering this story for as long as this show has been on air. And my memory was we were talking about tens of thousands of people currently. This is the most accurate estimate that we have so far. And it is quite a significant jump. Like, when we talked about antimicrobial resistance, I know that the the researchers were saying, look, this is a problem now, but there, there was sort of in the narrative a feeling that this is a problem in the future. Um, but this is very much on our doorstep. How are, are, are we doing in terms of finding new types of antibiotics or other ways to treat these sort of infections? Because that's something we really need to figure out. It's exactly like you said. I don't think anybody thought the figures were going to be this high. Three and a half thousand people are dying every day as a result of these types of bacteria. And we're not doing great in terms of what we can do. 
the, the ways to tackle it are are essentially twofold is to try and stop more resistance to the current bacteria or the current um, antibiotics that we have and to try and develop new systems. The problem is that antibiotics are cheap. Um, so a lot of companies don't want to develop them because they're not going to make a huge amount of money off them. So there's not a mass coming through in the pipeline, which is why it's really so, so scary. So we need to find nonprofit organizations that are dedicated to developing new antibiotics or ways to stop this resistance and combat it. Shane, our second story is actually a good news story when it comes to um, the environment and coral reefs, which we we often lament the losing of on this program, but actually new news from Tahiti. I suppose all news is new. (laughs) By definition, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, this is great news. Uh, Coral reefs, as listeners may know, um, they're very threatened ecosystems. An incredible 25% of all marine species are found uh, amongst coral reefs. And considering how small a, a part of the oceans and seas they are, that, that's an incredible figure. Um, and this work, as you said, has found a new coral reef. And good news, it's absolutely pristine. Um, and it's pristine because it's 30 metres below the waves. Normally, coral reefs are very, very close to the surface because they need, uh, they're shallow because the algae lives there. And uh, so it it needs that type of sunlight. So this huge three kilometer long reef has been discovered uh, through a project called Seabed 2030, which is a UNESCO project. And it aims to um, map the entire globe's uh, seabed by the year 2030, which is an incredible, uh, uh, yeah, it's brilliant. It's also amazing. This hasn't been done already, but uh, they found this this reef and they've said it's completely perfect and it may be that there are lots more reefs like this and they may um, provide a refuge for the future for when and it's it, it seems more that it's an inevitability now that we will lose our our shallower coral reefs um because of various things like pollution sea rise temperature rise acidification due to carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere um, so like, yeah, there, you know, that really isn't good news for those. So the scientists, the ecologists are saying maybe these deeper ones could be refuges for for some coral reef life. So they have to now go and try and understand its ecological role and to ensure that we protect them. So yeah. like, you know, we found it. We haven't ruined it yet, but we have form in this area. So give us time. <laughs> we'll probably ruin it. I was just thinking I'd love to go diving there. And then actually, no, no, don't do that. Do not Um, go diving. There is no need for you to go diving in a coral reef except to fulfill some sort of ego trip. Like just watch it on David Attenborough. You have never gone diving. Well, no, I did. I went diving once in um, in Borneo and I just remember uh, looking and seeing how much damage people were doing to the coral because people were standing on it. Well, obviously, that's not how you're supposed to dive. But no, um, but people are people. So uh i mean i suppose technically you are right in that uh any sort of a tourism will eventually cause some sort of uh, a damage and i don't know but does that mean that we just never go to get to go anywhere nice ever again is that the well yeah we can go to places yeah. that are nice but like do we need to go twice a year in such huge numbers like i don't know i just feel that the era of mass tourism will be something we look back on and think god how do we do that 
you know yeah. it's, it's not sustainable for us to fly around the world just just for two weeks holiday multiple times a year or once a year it really is yeah well well certainly i mean um the, the frequency is one thing but there's a lot of these islands for example they really depend on tourism and it's it's easy for us to pull the ladder up but a lot of them don't have a huge amount of money so it's a it's a mm. complex thing it um, is yeah Lara, our third story uh, has to do with a patent-free COVID vaccine. It's very topical at the moment. Yeah, believe it or not, another good news story on Future Proof. So I think we've we've, <laughs> we've smashed the records now with two good news stories. Um, this comes from the uh, Texas Children's Hospital, and there's a, a two chief scientists over there um, who are working on a, a vaccine, and their names are Maria Botazzi and Peter Hotez. And I think it's really important to say their names because these people are actually amazing. So they have been working for a long time on um, coronavirus vaccines since SARS and MERS were out. So since they started about 10 years ago working on these. And they use a very, um, I suppose, slightly old fashioned way of producing a vaccine in that it's not, you know, the brand new exciting mRNA, but they basically get yeast to produce the protein. And then they use that protein to vaccinate people. And if you search this, you know, you're going back to the 80s from when this started. But what they've done is they have made this free. So it's a useful and effective vaccine. It's over 90% effective from the original Wuhan strain, over 80% effective against the Delta variant. Now, this is in stopping symptomatic infection. So it's very important to note the difference between infection and symptomatic infection. And they've made it free. So it's now gotten emergency approval in India. 150 million doses have been made. They can make another 100 million a month at a bare minimum in this one factory. And they want it to be free. Um, this same lab, I looked them up just to see what their, their pedigree was. They have come up with the first vaccine for human hookworm, the first vaccine for intestinal schistosomiasis. Easy for you to say. It's really not. I actually just <laughs> said it wrong. Schistosomiasis. It's actually so hard to say. And um, for Chagas disease. So they are working on a lot of diseases that affect um, people in impoverished countries and people that they are not going to make the kind of money off of that they would otherwise. And I just think these people are amazing. We need to give them a big shout out. And hopefully this stops um, a lot of coronavirus in more impoverished countries. Yeah, let's hope they listen to Future Proof. Um, <laughs> Shane, our final story has to do with snow. And snowflakes. Um, it's said that no two snowflakes are alike, but perhaps some are similar. And uh, that's really helpful, right? Um, not, not just in pushing back against this whole idea of snowflake culture, which I think is a lot of rubbish, but uh, we can we can classify snowflakes and we can then predict what type of snow we're going to get on the ground and the consequences. So we can like, you know, will roads need to be cleared, etc. So in Utah, um, they've developed a three-dimensional camera, 3D camera, and they take pictures of, of snowflakes and they want to use artificial intelligence in order to be able to kind of, you know, uh, to, to, to classify quickly in the future. But in the meantime, we have to teach the, uh, the AI how to do its job. And that's where people come in. So people are being asked to take part in a citizen science experiment called Snowflake ID. You could do this at home. Just Google that and you could take part. And they want you to sort and classify snowflakes. Um, to tell the machine what type of snowflake you're looking at. And if you can do that, and if enough of us do it, eventually the machine will learn how to do it itself and it'll be able to uh, to, to, to kind of run this independently. And we What do you mean, like to... um, like a like a hail versus a big, fat, chunky snowflake? Or what are you talking about? Exactly. So, uh, and they'd be the extremes, but there's lots, of, lots more between. So we can talk about the weather 
um, by looking at, at the types of snowflakes that are in the atmosphere. They're described as letters from the sky by one of the scientists involved. But we can also tell a lot about the, the, the overall climate by looking at the makeup of, of snowflakes and right. uh, what, what are the conditions within the clouds that are leading to the formation of the different types of snowflakes. We know in Ireland we get kind of get wet, dirty snow. So that, that's, that is associated. I think with that's when it snowflakes. hits the ground, Shane. I don't think it's wet and dirty. I mean, I mean, I don't think it's dirty before it hits the ground, though, right? Well, it wouldn't be. Well, if, if there was pollution in the atmosphere, it could be dirty. But the, the snowflakes would be different <laughs> in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> you are right to get me this morning. The, the snowflakes in the atmosphere in Ireland would be different because it isn't as cold. So, like, right. uh, and when you when you go to somewhere like, you know, high mountains where it is less humid, you'll have really different types of snowflakes. The snow is much drier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you probably ski as well as uh, snorkel, do you? Uh, look, this, what do you have to <laughs> leisure shame me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to take that bait. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sidestep it very quickly. Uh, Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and Dr. Lara Dungan, thanks very much for joining us as always. Now, in the mid to late 90s, chances are if you were to ask a young girl or boy what they wanted to be when they grow up, you'd hear them say archaeologist or paleontologist. Back then, digging in the dirt looking for bones was extremely cool and with good reason. But in reality, if you actually wanted to become a dinosaur fossil hunter and you were living in Ireland, well, you'd be in trouble because we don't have many dinosaur bones to speak of. Why is that? Well, Dr. Mike Sims is Senior Curator of Natural Sciences at the National Museums of Northern Ireland. He joins me now. Um, Mike, welcome to the programme. How, how did you, you obviously predate um, Jurassic Park, I would imagine. Um, yeah. How did you get into um, this interest that you have in, in fossils? I thought you were going to say predate the dinosaurs. No, no. <laughs> um, I actually, uh, when I was six, I found some fossils in the back garden. I lived in in Gloucestershire in England, and there were lots of fossils in that area. Mm. Found a few of these things in the back garden, didn't know what they were, and um, I called them patterny stones, stones with patterns on. And I asked my dad that evening, he said, oh, they're fossils. And I just became obsessed from that moment on, really. And uh, so all my waking hours were spent fossil collecting. And, and here I am, sort of 55 years later, and still sort of fossil collecting. I've widened a bit, but... Um, yeah, still very much into fossils. And of course, I became interested in dinosaurs. My dad took me to the Natural History Museum in London uh, when I was about seven to see the dinosaurs there. Mm. And I thought, wow, amazing things. Yeah, my I brought my kids there and they said, where is the sweets and toy shop? <laughs> so, I don't know. May, I don't know. Maybe I've overstimulated my children. And now it's like seeing a, a dinosaur skeleton in a in a giant museum is is just not it just doesn't do it for them um so why on earth would you go to northern ireland then um having this interest in in fossils as you have because am i right in saying that um ireland is a dreadful place to look for fossils except for a tiny part of northern ireland well there's plenty of fossils in uh in ireland you know across different parts of ireland some very very important fossils there's actually a a fossil trackway made by I think of a tetrapod, which is like a giant newt about a meter long, down on Valencia Island, and that's an incredibly important fossil worldwide. It's it's Ireland's most important fossil. 
of all. Um, but the problem is we don't have rocks of the right age, really, for dinosaurs. Lots of rocks are full of fossils. Go to Streeter Point and Sligo and places like that. Loads of fossils, but they predate the dinosaurs. And that's that's the problem. So it's, you can find fossils, but you cannot find uh, many rocks of the right age for dinosaurs. There's a little bit up here in Northern Ireland, places at White Park Bay and Larne, where you actually find some Jurassic clays. And you find a lot of the kind of oysters and clams and, and ammonites, which are the kind of coiled shells that contained a squid-like animal. You can find those. And occasionally you find bones of uh, what we call marine reptiles. There's a clue in the name. They're reptiles that swam in the sea. And I tend to group them as thingosaurs because they end in osaurs. So the ichthyosaur, which looks like a dolphin, but was a reptile, hmm. and plesiosaurs, which uh, looks a bit like a, a snake threaded through a turtle's body, a bit like the Loch Ness Monster. Loch Ness Monster doesn't <laughs> exist, but everybody knows what it looks like. Um, and so we find bones of those and teeth of those. Have we? Um, and, and many fossils of those? I would say, oh, quite a few, you know, each year. And we get people sort of bring bits in from time to time. And there's one really, really nice uh, little skull of an ichthyosaur that was found, oh, goodness, 30 years ago or more now. Uh, and it's on display in the museum. Lovely little thing. Um, yeah, it looks like a dolphin skull, but it's actually from this thing called an ichthyosaur. And bits of the backbone, because one of these ichthyosaurs will have probably 120, 130 vertebrae bits of wow. and once the animal has sunk to the sea floor and its carcass has rotted these little vertebrae they're, they're sort of roughly circular so they're a bit like little wheels and currents kind of trundle them off across the sea floor and so you actually find these are the most common fossils of all that we find of these marine reptiles are bits of the backbone um and yeah. every i would say you know two or three times a year i get a, a an email or whatever and somebody's saying oh i found this and i say oh yes sir. it's a nice find i'm always pleased to find a bit of one of those but but um, when we think of the history of living things, we are but a tiny sliver, a minuscule slice in the history of large living things uh, on this planet. I mean, beyond the dinosaurs, of course, there were large animals um, on Earth uh, up to 600 million years ago. And so what is it with Ireland and um, and the rocks that we have that they didn't preserve any of this? Because when I think about the amount of carcasses, 660 million years of giant animals must have created layer upon layer of bones, skulls and so on. It's just hugely disappointing that we've got practically nothing here. Why is that? Yeah, in terms of dinosaurs, we're... Let's say we've got very, very little rock. In terms of the land area of Ireland, there's perhaps 1% of the land area is rock of the right age. Now, rocks of that age probably would have covered other parts of Ireland, and it's all up in the northeast of Ireland, really. And rocks of that age would have um, covered much bigger area of Ireland, but they've been eroded away over many, many millions of years. So they've been eroded down to, to older rocks. So most of the Irish Midlands is over, underlain by rocks about 350 million years ago. And those younger rocks would have been there, you know, in the distant past. They might have contained dinosaurs, but they've been eroded away. So all we've got left is these little bits, sort of fragments, little areas up in the north, where there is the potential to find a dinosaur bone because they are the right age of rocks. Now, I don't understand that. You're saying 
um, the rocks that we have have been worn away in the middle of the Ireland back to about 350 million years ago, which is, of course, too far back for the age of the dinosaurs, roughly yeah. 65 million yes. to 220 million, right? Um, but what about other large animal fossils? Why do we well, not find those there? Well, the dinosaurs were the real biggies, of course. Um, we do have uh, evidence, like I said, this 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 thing, the Valencia Island tetrapod. Tetrapod just means four feet in Latin. Uh, and it looked like a big newt. And it was about a metre long. And really, that's there were things back in that time. This is about 380 million years ago, um, when a fair bit of Ireland was actually kind of land and lakes and rivers and things like that. Yeah. So this sort of metre long newt would have been plodding across the across the mudflats at that time. And the important thing about that particular one is that backboned animals, our distant ancestors, have only just emerged onto land. Before that time, there was really very little living on land. There was, you know, the occasional centipede and millipede and a bit of moss, but, you know, sophisticated backboned animals. This thing on Valencia Island was the, was really one of the very first ones, one of the pioneers. And this, whereas a lot of fossils, they're carcasses, they're the remains of dead things. This is the footprints. And you can see this thing kind of meandering rather drunkenly across this, this sort of, <laughs> flat inclined to the surface and that's evidence of it actually going about its business one tuesday afternoon you know it's just wandered across its mud flat and left those footprints that moment in time so but, it's but, very very special it tells you something about the behavior of the animal that you can't get from a carcass but but um okay so i i get why we don't have dinosaurs in our rocks mm. but this newt that you talk about or any other similar animal why why is it we're just finding one of these trails why is all of rock not studded with the corpses of animals gone past i mean why are there not thousands of these new trails yeah. i mean every single day one of these animals would have died like so why do we have so i mean even if you think about dinosaurs yeah. worldwide mm. even dinosaur skeletons are profusely rare when you think about how many yeah. there must have been what what what, is, what am i not getting it's recycling. That's the important thing, is that things get recycled. So a, a skeleton of an animal, its bones, or certainly the soft parts, you know, well, they're, they're good to eat, maybe, perhaps when they're a bit rotten. So things are recycling the soft parts quite quickly. And then other critters will actually kind of gnaw away at the bones because the bones contain kind of calcium and phosphorus and things like that. So things tend to get uh, recycled pretty quickly and then um, just the erosion you know, you look on a, on a seashore and you can see it's quite an erosive sort of place so a skeleton ends up there quite quickly gets ground up to to sand so that's really what's happening things are being recycled sometimes the skeletons the shells and such like will be dissolved by you know the water after they died yeah so it's recycling, because otherwise we'd soon be up to our, our necks in, in dead birds almost, so, wouldn't we? Because, yeah, they're dying every day. So but. do you need sort of like a Goldilocks scenario to to preserve a, a dinosaur skeleton well then? Does there does something very you special do. need to happen in the, it, you know, at that time where the, the, the bones are yeah. laid down? Yes. So if we look at the, the, the dinosaurs we do have, um, two fragments of bone, are actually found in uh, Jurassic clays. And these clays were actually deposited out at sea, which is not where dinosaurs live, 
but fossils that are found in those clays are things that were living on the seabed and mud was being deposited all the time and so these fossils these animals get buried by the mud and that preserves them and protects them from scavengers and from being eroded right and so that's why we find them but in some of the other rocks that the rotation the rocks are a little bit older than these jurassic rocks called triassic rocks and they're deposited on land and some of them were deposited around lakes which is at a place you might expect to find dinosaurs and most fossil dinosaurs are found in these sorts of things river deposits lake deposits but the ones that we have in the north of ireland that are the right age were actually deposited in really very very arid conditions so these were very very salty lakes and there may be dinosaurs there but it's a really really lousy place to try and preserve things because it's a very hostile climate you know it gets very hot and the bones crumble away so you just don't get them preserved on the other end, we've got what's called the Cretaceous rocks, and that's the chalk that you see up in the north. And that's the right age for the, some of the best dinosaurs, uh, Triceratops and Tyrannosaurus, things like that. But that's deposited way out at sea. And again, dinosaurs are living on land. They're living alongside rivers and lakes. We're not going to find them out, yeah, way out in the ocean. So those rocks, right age, but lousy place. The Jurassic rocks you see, and I said about those, they're, they're good, they're nice clays, and they preserve lots of fossils, and they contain those marine reptiles, the dolphin-like ichthyosaur and the Loch Ness monster plesiosaur. But then there's these two dinosaur bones, and those dinosaurs weren't living on that seabed. They were living on land somewhere. So they've ended up in the sea. And you think, how's that? Well, there's more than one or two cows have fallen in the Shannon over the years. <laughs> And their skeletons have ended up at the bottom of the Atlantic. That's what's happened here. Is this is a, or these are two dinosaurs that have died and they've been perhaps swept out to sea and their bones have sunk to the seabed and they've been preserved there. So we're very, very lucky to, to have them at all because they're not in the rocks we would expect to find dinosaurs. Um, how close are we to getting a machine that can X-ray rock to find fossils i mean do we have something like that wouldn't that be a great thing to have i don't know it would it would take the fun the excitement out of looking you see um, not, in, not in ireland it wouldn't no i don't know well <laughs> you you never know you're know, going along a sort of beach or whatever and, and you know a new cliff or you never know what you might find in it you see hmm. um and quite often there's not really much of a contrast between the rocks and the fossils they contain so we cannot have a, a, a machine that'll kind of x-ray oh yes let's dig there mm. um there are techniques for finding it sometimes fossils might in really interesting fossils fish and dinosaur bits can be enclosed by a sort of like a, a concretion or a nodule that's grown around the um around the fossil and there are fancy techniques now which can be used to do the equivalent of x-ray to look inside these lumps of rock before you start excavating the rock away from the bones right um, I, I, I know um from experience that you should never denigrate a gentleman's fossils um so i say this with the, with the acknowledgement of that but it's great to hear that despite the the real lack of of good solid um fossils like a lot of the stuff that we have is sort of bits of tiny bone <laughs> that we have identified as being part of something but you know not these ex skeletons that you imagine when you when you watch something like Jurassic Park um it's 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 great to see that you still don't want to cheat and use uh, new techniques to try and find find potentially amazing animals hidden right underneath our noses i think that's awesome 
I think I think it's important because some of the really really good stuff that we have in the museum here was actually found by amateurs. So this uh, this little ichthyosaur skull was found by a schoolgirl back in 1991. Hmm. Uh, and if we had a big fancy machine which went along and sort of oh yeah that's where they all are, it would take away that that surprise. So she is still very attached to this sort of skull, not physically, but it, <laughs> it's it was an important part of her life. Yeah. Um, she's gone on to great things. She's done a TED talk. That's mm. Emma McElroy. She did a TED talk in which she put the discovery of this thing has been a very important part of her life that set her on a particular course. Well, well, maybe the invention of a machine that discovers all these dinosaurs will do the same for somebody. But I, I feel there's a romantic in you uh, that began when you were six years old and found those first fossils. Uh, it's been brilliant speaking with you. Michael Sims, uh, Senior Curator of Natural Sciences at the National Museums Northern Ireland. Thanks very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I don't know about you, but I think it's rather unfair that we don't have a lot of dinosaurs here in Ireland. But um, there you go. It seems a little unfair that we don't get dinosaurs. I think an Irish dinosaur would be particularly cool. Um, and, you know, we have such rich mythology. It's, it's a shame that we don't have giant... I mean, I know we have giant monsters, but like real giant monsters to inform that. Um, Aidan McKelvey, our producer, joins me now to go through your comments from last week. It's a bit shit that we don't have dinosaurs, isn't it? We have a fairly bland animal biosphere still as well. Just like, you know, nothing too extravagant. They're all kind of boring. No, to, I mean, we had wolves, hatched. right? I think we had bear. We had, you know, giant elk, I think. And they all got killed. We killed them all. Well, that's true, yeah. But we we never had anything like really weird, like a duck-billed platypus or anything. Um, got squ- we got squirrels. Lots of squirrels. We d- I mean, yeah, but they're not even our squirrels. They're someone else's squirrels, aren't they? That's someone else's yeah. squirrels coming in here, taking our jobs. <laughs> yeah, the odd time you get a red squirrel. And you're like, good for you. <laughs> He's like, go, still run, alive. squirrel. Run for your life. <laughs> um, it's, just, uh, it, like, it's just the grey squirrel you know, just being better at being a squirrel, isn't it? Like if you were a squirrel like this, all you have to do, think about is, you know, get the nuts, sleep, you know, find another squirrel. It's like it's not a complicated life. I would be so depressed if I was a a red squirrel that I was like the second best at being a squirrel. I was a (laughs) squirrel. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, imagine like you lived in a world where every man was uh, eight foot tall better looking than you and faster than you. Wouldn't, I feel you wouldn't... like I do live in that world. I do. Right. How do we go from there to here? Right. Uh, time to look at your comments from last week. How's your, week, how's your day going? I'm, I'm not really interested in how your day is going. I just want to tell you how my day is going, but give me a cursory answer. Don't make it too long. <laughs> Cursorarily, that's not a word. Yes, I'm very excited about the lifting restrictions. So that should be it. Should be a good day for for all of us. Is everyone just going to go absolutely mental? Like, is Let's it going to be go, like man. Maniac 2000 on repeat across the entire country? It's going to be like a whole month of Arthur's Day. Do you yeah. remember that? Jesus. <laughs> and it'll be exactly like the that. day that, that, let, that we don't speak terrible. its name. I mean, it was such a great idea. And the, like the two years it was on, if you went to gigs, it was such a buzz around town. But then we had to go and ruin it. Oh, um, yeah. Well, I used to play gigs in Arthur's Day and they were an absolute nightmare. Yeah, but they were. <laughs> 
I, I imagine we're going to do the same over the next while. I just don't, I can't see it being any different. But uh, anyway, my day, um, I, my, and my wife and children have left for the weekend. And so I quit work early this morning and I went for a three hour bike ride. I came home, I had a nap, I had a bath and read a book in the bath. Then I had a nap. Then I walked my dog down to the local village and bought a huge steak went to the fancy chocolate place, bought some fancy chocolates for myself, and now I'm going to watch a three-hour movie in 4K on my own, drinking Margot. Like, Very nice. I, I, I'm honestly, when, when I started thinking about this day, it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's, 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 it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off as a 46-year-old man. I am well, extremely excited about finishing yeah. this day. You were in the way of me finishing that day. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'm always in the way. Okay, See, well, you do have say- a habit. Yeah, this is going to say something very specific about your character. So you basically had a day to do exactly what Jonathan, with no restrictions, would like to do. And to be honest, it sounds very nice. I, I'm, I'm impressed with what you've got so far. But the, the kind of the clincher is, what movie have you chosen to watch when you could watch any movie and nobody can get in your way because you're a grown up? What did you go for? Dune. OK, that's why I was kind of hoping it would be something funnier well uh, you know i have is... tomorrow night and i thought i'd go the absolute um other way and do some total just a three-hour movie that my wife would never watch something like akira kusaro or something um and be really totally um, beard strokey because it's something my wife would never watch but i might actually go japanese horror um anyway enough about my perfect weekend um <sighs> Let's talk about your texts and tweets from last week. We were talking about tearless onions. Uh, Shane told us that they have now invented tearless onions that are three times more expensive, um, but they don't make you cry when you cut them. James from Drahada says, uh, tearless onions, call me when you've got garlic-free breath garlic. That's a good idea. Um, Richard Roach uh, on Twitter said, uh, any update on the Science Gallery campaign? have like a hunch it's going to be okay it's it's a little more than a hunch it's a slightly informed hunch but not very well informed it's like oh. I passed someone on the street and they just kind of flashed a you know a, a symbol with their hand or something that's kind of like that's the level of I think I know what's going on I think it could be okay Um, but I, I really don't know so that's total conjecture don't hold me to anything Um, last week I asked you a question and that was I got given out to you for not mentioning the Irish science on board um, the the James Webb tels- James Webb Telescope, and I asked whether or not it is my duty to mention every time there's Irish science involved in something we're talking about. I hadn't asked you, Aidan, before I read out this email. Do you think I? Do you think that's a, a a duty as a science broadcaster working in Ireland, or is it a, or sh- is it something I should be doing, or what do you, what do you think? Like. The, do I have to do I, I mean, I'm not do I have to do that, but is that is that an, is there an onus on me to do that? Because that uh, means, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I'd be kind of inclined in terms of the content of any show, not just like this particular show, but any show, I think the, you know, as, as long as the content's good, to me, it doesn't really matter where it comes from. But having said that, it is nice. I think there's something about hearing an Irish voice and you, you, you can kind of, relate to you feel like you can relate to that person yeah. a bit more because you know they might walk down Grafton Street the same day you walk down Grafton Street or whatever and um, so there is a bit but I, th- I think it should only be like a tiny 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 little bias maybe towards yeah. having uh, an Irish piece on if you can get one 
Yeah. But I wouldn't I wouldn't go out of my way looking for a lesser Irish piece I mean, when you've a good international piece. Exactly. I felt bad because I was given out to, but there was like a, a, a software component of a part of the telescope that was Irish. And I was like, okay, is that... Is that significant enough? And like that sounds awful, but like, is that something that that you know that I I, I should feel bad over and not reporting? This is this, I'm just literally my stream of consciousness here. So, give out hell to me if you think this is a terrible thing to question. But Owen says, "Hi, Jonathan. Fair play, love the show. I do like the variety of the guests that you have on on the Irish thing. I do like to hear about Irish contributions to science, but as long as the coverage is proportional to the worth, and we're not around, and we're not at the stage where we're trumpeting about every little thing we do, I roll." I think the onus is on Irish contributors to make Irish media aware, and maybe that's where the failing lies this time around. Well, no, in fairness, they, they, I may have just missed a press release. That's, that does happen. Um, uh, you're only human after all, and not some God, some all-seeing godlike entity, at least as far as we know. If you are, then let me be the first to say, all hail Jonathan. I like this guy. <laughs> Note, I have followed Brian Rogers for many years. I think he's a really good advocate for Irish research. Okay, maybe I should just follow him, and if he says something, I'll... I'll, I'll take it under advisement on a separate point I have to say Neil deGrasse uh, Tyson's comment about how much preparation he puts into interviews has really stayed with me really inspirational thanks for keeping me company on long journeys to my job working at Ireland's only EV battery pack manufacturer Zero Tech uh, well um, hello to everyone at Zero Tech um, yeah no that was really interesting but actually it, it just shows like people who are brilliant at media put a huge amount of work into thinking about how to do the best one but actually you know, him thinking about the the delays or the interruptions that Stephen Colbert typically does when he's talking. That's mad, you know. Um, we were also talking uh, about the um, Robber's Cave email and uh, the this is a, a, a sort of a social experiment in the 60s where uh, a guy called Sharif got two boys, put them in, in camps and told them to sort of... Uh, sort of be hostile towards each other. They're sort of uh, cultured hate amongst the two. Um, and we got a long email here from Roisin. She says, uh, Hi, Jonathan. Happy New Year. Just a note to say, always enjoy the, pro as always, enjoy the program um, from last week. Well, thank you very much. The piece about the advancement in stem cells research was both chilling, in other words, the manipulation of uh, embryos, but on the other hand, very encouraging in terms of curing disease. I was reminded of the prophecy in the book of Daniel that says that towards the end of this age, knowledge will increase significantly, but wisdom will decrease. I didn't expect a Bible reference in there, but actually it's a good one. Um, the piece about Robert's, Robert's Cave regarding Sharif's horrendous experiments to two groups of boys in a summer camp causes me to comment, isn't that exactly what most armies do today? Yeah, I mean, I, in a way, yeah, absolutely. I'm reminded of you know that slew of 1980s war movies that kept on asking that question, what the hell am I in this war for and what are we doing here anyway? And it seems to be like a common thread amongst war movies. People who make war films are like, what What was the whole point of this thing? Um, but she says, it reminds me of the following. Uh, in 1991, a group of young, raw U.S. Army recruits landed fresh from the United States into the camp I was at on the border of Iraq, just immediately after the Gulf War. It was there with a humanitarian, I was there with a humanitarian organization. Several of the young American guys told us it was their first time ever outside of their own individual states in the States, uh, United States. The only way I can describe those poor young uh, guys is they had been blooded and were absolutely raring to go and shoot up some equally young and raw Iraqi soldiers. A couple of days later, as my group drove without any security through a mountain pass into a remote area of Kurdistan, 
with a seriously diminishing amount of diesel for our jeeps, we were stopped by two AK-47 touting Iraqi soldiers. For reasons best known to God alone, these two soldiers were delighted to see us and have someone to talk to. Not only did they bless us on our journey, but when they knew we were travelling to Kurdistan, they also gave us a jerry can full of diesel from their own reserve so we could get there safely. About a week later again, while we were working at a field hospital in Kurdistan, we heard those two same Iraqi guys had been shot dead by the US guys. Oh my God, Roshin. This is a book. Oh my God. It has been my own very long-held belief that the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth and the wisdom that offers real hope for our human race. Can't agree with you there, but otherwise with you all the way. Otherwise, some other species will ask sometime in the future, whatever happened to the human race, to quote Francis Schaeffer. Keep up the good work. Look, Roshin, um, that is an amazing story and I'm not dismissing your beliefs. I just, I, I've said many times, I am an atheist and um, and, and I, I don't think we, we necessarily need religion in our lives. Um, I, I, and I, as I've said, I, I think a lot of the time it sort of hinders our progress, but that's my own opinion. You are entitled to yours. What an amazing story. Aiden. Um, can we ring Roshin up? And I know it's nothing to do with science, but maybe we could do a psychology piece about aggression and just work this in. It just seems like it needs us. It needs to be told this story. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. God. Like you said, it's a strange thing that we do, where we set people out to fight against each other for an argument that's not their argument. Um, oh, this, I mean, there's got to be something we can do. We need to hear from Roshin again. Roshin, thank you so much for sharing your stories. That's kind of like what we would hope th this section of the podcast should be every week, but <laughs> we don't always get the, the content well, to riff off. And, and then sometimes I'm just in a mood, Aiden, which you can test. <laughs> yeah, you thought I was going to say, usually you're not as affable as this. I know, but, I know. Well, hey, <laughs> listen, I've got a Margot Chambrain, you know, you know. I know I sound like a, so, I sound like a total dick, but I'm very excited about this evening. Um, well, good evening to you, sir. Uh, yeah, enjoy, good evening to you. Go, go enjoy um, that film. Enjoy the end of days of, uh, as uh, noises. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Enjoy end of days as everyone starts drinking way too much because they haven't in in a while. Um, thanks to Aidan McKelvey, producer Simon Keane, uh, Garrett Mahal, JJ Clark, Jojo Cardozo, who was on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. <laughs>